0: The number one uh, item on our agenda this uh, morning, of course, is to pray for the current situation in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, on Thursday, um, Russia launched an invasion of the nation of Ukraine, and we want to pray for them. I believe that this is a harbinger of things that is to come. I believe we're entering in a season of great conflict. The church must awaken. I hear the battle horns of Deborah being sounded and calling the church to arise, O army of the dawn arise in this hour. Father, we stand before you today and we pray for this current conflict that's going on in the Ukraine. We pray that this war will come to a swift conclusion. We pray for the minimal loss of lives, the minimal collateral damage, Lord. We pray for the um, the uh, the parties to come to the negotiating table and we speak peace, Lord, because we know every time there's a war the gospel is hindered, Lord. Every time there is a conflict, every time uh, the enemy seeks to precipitate Armageddon, he seeks to precipitate war, and we know that, Lord, the church is the only bastion that can stand against him in this hour. So I pray in Jesus' name, God, that this sober word today will come forth uh, to your people, and he that have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. We just offer this time to you today, and we ask that you speak to us as only you can speak. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated in the presence of God. Uh, My message this morning is called the drumbeat of war. We're entering into a season of great conflict. And the scripture says, first, the natural, and then the spiritual. On the 24th of February, Russia invaded Ukraine, and the 70 plus years of peace that Europe has known was suddenly shattered. And there's every possibility that this war could quickly spread into a regional uh, conflict and if unchecked, could become a European war, which then could lead to World War III. Uh, this is not an impossibility, and that's how World War II started when Germany annexed parts of Czechoslovakia. Uh, Jesus predicted this when he said, you will hear wars, and you will hear rumors of wars. This is consequential, this is inevitable, and we must not be troubled. These things are going to happen and they will keep on escalating. The fallout of this war <coughs> is quite catastrophic, especially if it's long-drawn. Just think about the possible ramifications. Did you know that 40% of Europe's energy needs come from the gas lines, uh, pipelines from Russia? And if Russia cuts off the supply, which she would eventually, in six weeks, Europe will run out of sufficient energy to keep the uh, economies from going. And oil prices will escalate. Inflation will skyrocket. Markets will crash. They have not yet crashed, but they will crash, trust me. Uh, Supply chains will be affected. Food will be in short supply. Russia, of course, you know, is the largest producer, exporter of wheat, and Ukraine is the fourth largest exporter, and so you understand the ramifications. And I don't think it's presumptuous for me to suggest that the fallout from this war is going to be even worse than the last two years in the pandemic. And we cannot put our heads in the sand and say, uh, we're so far away from the conflict. really doesn't bother me. It's not my business. Trust me, it will affect you. Take a picture of your last electricity bill, my friends, because that's the last time you're ever going to see the kind of rates that we're paying. It's going to escalate. The price of your petrol has gone up 30%, and uh, it's going to keep on increasing. Everything is going to be in short supply, and the prices of goods and services will skyrocket. Now, when I speak about war, I'm referring to a spiritual war. The church must be ready mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and even physically. Our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty into pulling down our strongholds. I've been accused by some people in the past of being a warmonger. No sir, I ain't no warmonger. That is the furthest thing from the truth. But when the enemies are at our gate, when they threaten my family, when they threaten our way of life, when they threaten our children, Then I cannot sit still and keep silent. I have to put away my fears, put on the armor of God, and ready myself for the battle. Now the Bible tells us that we have an adversary, a roaring lion who seeks to devour us. Jesus said that the thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In the book of Revelation, the second and third chapters, the Lord Jesus sends seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And out of curiosity, I counted the number of times that Satan is mentioned in those letters. Did you know that he's mentioned in four of the seven letters to the seven churches? And in the letters that he's mentioned, he's seen as a troublemaker. He's seen as an opposer, an adversary, the one who tries to thwart the plans of God. And then I looked at the other three churches where his name is not mentioned. One is dead, one is lukewarm, and one is backslid. So Satan already has those three churches in his pocket. He doesn't need to oppose them. They are already out of the game. But when a church is moving forward, when a church catches the vision and understands our end time uh, position, then we must be aware that the roaring lion, that ancient serpent, roars around and goes about and he's seeking to devour us. And we must not be ignorant of his devices. The one thing that Satan has on the top of his priority list is to seek to precipitate Armageddon. He wants to provoke. He wants to lure the nations into war because he knows his time is short. And he sees his own demise coming. And he knows better than any one of us, better than any one of us, that a mighty revival is on the horizon. And he sees this massive end time harvest of souls. And the only way that he can thwart the plans of God is by provoking war, a global war. Did you know that just prior to World War II, there was a massive mobilization of students in the West? Thousands, tens of thousands of young people dedicated their lives to the propagating of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be sent into the nations. And then all of a sudden, World War II was, was uh, started and instead of seeing a grand harvest of souls, 85 million people estimated died in the bloodiest war ever and the harvest was pushed back Yet again, but I stand here today and say to you that God's plans shall not be thwarted. We must, in our intercessions, avert a global war. And the only force that can bind Satan is an upper room company. Hallelujah. Shaka And has not God given us the blueprint? Has not God joined this church, Cornerstone, our our destiny, our heritage, to the greatest prayer ministry in the last century? The ministry of Mr. Rees Howells and those praying saints at the Bible College of Wales, did they not turn the course of World War II? On Tuesday, my wife and I will be going to the Bible College of Wales. And during that whole two weeks over there, did you know that many people all around the world are coming, especially at this time, because they want to be part of a Blue Room company. They want to come to the Bible College of Wales because they know that at this place, God thwarted the plans of Hitler. And we're going to go back and there are people all around the world coming in to this, in the next two weeks to pray. And all, you know, our Blue Room is packed with people. You have to book to come and pray in the Blue Room because there's so many people that are coming. And I'm telling you this, God is going to do something about this as well. Amen. There's going to be a mighty Blue Room company that will rise up and with the mantle of Mr. Reese Howells who will set aside their personal agendas, their petty differences, and make this the number one priority and focus. The harvest is at the end of the age. That must be our focus to every creature commission. To pray in the laborers, to pray in the harvesters, and to be ready to launch at a moment's notice. My text for today is Numbers chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. The Lord says to Moses, take a census of all the congregation of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years above All who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. One of the first things that the Lord commanded Moses to do was to take a census. When they came out into the wilderness, it was not a general census. It was a specific census. They were only supposed to number the number of men over the age of 20 who were ready and fit for war. So infants were not counted. Children were not counted. Women were not counted. I guess Senior citizens were not counted as well. Only the men of war were to be numbered because of the season that Israel was entering into. They were about to enter into conflict and in a time of conflict, you better know how many soldiers you've got, man. Jesus said when you go into a war with a neighboring enemy, you better count the number of men you've got. You've got to know how many soldiers you've got. And only the number of men were counted men of war because of the season that Israel was entering into. She was entering into a season of conflict. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist, my friends, to know that the church is entering into a season of conflict once again. And God is counting the number of warriors he has in the church. One of the things that this COVID lockdown has done, that I think in the last 25 years has not been accomplished, is that most pastors don't even count the number of people they have in the church any longer. Which is a good thing. Attendance is no longer an important issue because nobody really knows how many people they've got, man. I mean, we don't know really how many people we've got left in Cornerstone until all the restrictions are lifted up. And then we'll probably guess, you know, this is who we have left here. You know, the fallout is going to be quite significant, I tell you, in many churches. What we do know in Cornerstone is our cell attendance is extremely healthy. What we do know in Cornerstone is our baptisms are strong What we do know in Cornerstone is that our giving is very healthy as well. So those are important KPIs for us. But the upside of this is God is not looking at our attendance Uh, over the weekend. he, He loves every single person, obviously, all right? But what he is looking for in the season is the number of disciples we have in this church. He's looking for the number of warriors we have. In, how, how prepared is Cornerstone for battle? How many have we got trained? How many are we truly disciples? How many are ready for the, for the activation and deployment? That's the word that was used by Tim. Those are questions we need to be asking. Everybody in Cornerstone must be trained. Everybody must know the foundation truths. Everybody must know how to cast out devils. Everybody must know how to pray for the sick. Everybody must know how to share a gospel. Everybody must know how to share a testimony. Everybody should have five messages prepared. Every one of us ready for deployment. Hallelujah. Amen. And we should be ready for hardship as well if necessary. Because God is doing a census of the men of war we have in Cornerstone. John Piper says, unless we believe that life is a war, we will not understand what prayer is for. When David fled into the wilderness as a fugitive, God began to join people to him supernaturally. Uh, And the people that first came to David at Adullam were discontent, depressed, disenfranchised, discouraged. I call them the 40 Christians, amen. 400 of them, and David became the captain over them. Now imagine pastoring this ragtag bunch of Soldiers, they're probably the most disenfranchised group of men ever assembled. But by the time David became king over all of Israel, that company of men became the greatest fighting force the world has ever seen. And of all these men that David had, he had 37 mighty warriors. The Hebrew word is the Giborim hallelujah! Shamba, Rota, Sababa. I didn't speak Hebrew, I was speaking. English <laughs> speaking. The Giborim. Three out of the 37 men were singled out. The first was a fierce warrior called Adino, who was the leader of this elite company of people. Man, this was the select of the select, man. This was the, the marines of the marines. This is like the SEAL Team 7, right? In a in in single battle, this guy killed 800 soldiers. Woo! One battle. One battle. I tell you this, if you can kill 800 men in one battle, it's not because you're like Bruce Lee, right? Oh, you are skilled in warcraft. It's because the spirit of might is upon you, as it was upon Samson. You know, when Samson received that spirit of might, he was transformed into another man. And they could not understand what was the source of his strength. I don't think he was like like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, everybody where you can... He wasn't. I think he was like a dude like everybody else, right? But when the spirit of might came upon him, he became a different man. And he couldn't die. Couldn't die. How do you fight a man in a battle that cannot die? Hallelujah. The next was a man called Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I think that uh, he was probably called the son of Dodo once too often. (laughs) That's it. I'm going to kill all of you. I kill you. And he fought the Philistines and everyone had retreated. He stood his ground. And he had a sword that became a part of it. After the battle, they had to peel his fingers off the sword because it was stuck to his hands, man. You call that commitment in a battle. And uh, it was, of course, a picture of the word becoming an extension of who he was. And then the third man was a man called Shama. We all know him because he's the guy that defended the field of lentils. Of course, that was the very spot that David killed the giant Goliath. So he was redeeming revival history. Now in Isaiah 43 and verse 4, and this is where it gets prophetic, were told that Israel was precious in God's eyes and because they were precious to him, he gave men for them. There comes a point in our lives where we have this internal realization that God is establishing us and that you have become precious in the eyes of God and that his force of favor begins to wrap itself around you. And one of the things that favor does is when it brings you to another level, it shifts, all right? And what God does is he adds resources, he adds manpower to you for the purposes of fulfilling the plan and the vision that he has given to you. So when I pray for favor, God responds to me by by sending people uh, to, to us to fulfill the vision. Now, my destiny is not tied to those who have left. It's tied to those of you who are joined to the vision. Come on. It's really important. Sometimes I tell people, you know, when you, if you ever stepped out of this calling, it might be that God is not going to bring you ever into that, the same inheritance. David pleased the Lord through all his trials that he went through, and God started sending mighty men from all the different tribes, not ordinary men. These were extraordinary warriors, captains, who were drawn by the Spirit of God to David at the strongholds, avengers assemble. Hallelujah. Amen. When David was finally anointed king over the tribe of Judah, men, the men of war, numbered over the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Well, oh, that's a huge army, man. That came with one intention to make David king and prophetically this is what God is doing right now in this church. I cannot fully explain it. I don't fully understand it. But I see right now people coming from all the different tribes. The numbers are increasing. I get emails from, from many sources all the time. People saying, Pastor Young, I didn't even know that Cornerstone existed. Until one morning, brushing my teeth, the Lord said, go to Cornerstone. And then I Google and I found that there was a church. And that's how I joined this church. Hallelujah. Many people have been writing to me that they've been hearing God speak to them to come. And I, I think that this is very significant. And the sole motivation of this formative army must be one thing and one thing alone to enthrone Jesus, the greater David, as King of kings and as Lord of lords. Hallelujah. The numbers are increasing and we're seeing an embryonic army being raised up right now. shaka One 1 Chronicles chapter 12 is an interesting chapter. It traces the growth of David's army. When David moved to Ziklag, sounds very much like (laughs) Ziklag. Others began to recognize who David really was. They understood that he was the true and anointed king of Israel. A lot of people did not. Uh, Saul was still in power. You know the story. The first group that came to him was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, They were mighty men, ambidextrous, mighty in battle. They were so skilled with a slingshot that if you faced a Benjamite within a 20-yard distance, you're a dead man and you don't even know it. I think that's the last thing you want to do in a battle, facing a Benjamite from 20 yards because that slingshot that he had in his hands, that stone is going to hit you right in the forehead and you don't even know it's going to happen. The second group of people that came to David were the Gadites and they were the fiercest tribe in Israel. Did you know that? They were the warrior class in Israel. They were described as mighty men of valor, trained in battle, could handle the shield and spear whose faces were like the faces of lions. Hallelujah. Shaka Hallelujah. And they're, they're, they're swift like gazelles on the mountain. The least was over a hundred, the greatest over a thousand. I tell you this, many years ago, my spiritual father, Brother Bailey, came to this church and he spoke about the tribe of Gadites. And he said to me, many Gadites are coming to Cornerstone. Mighty men, mighty men of valor, mighty women of valor. I tell you, God is joining something of an army to this house. Hallelujah. Amen. Many years ago, God gave me a prophetic promise that he would join us, men and women, men of valor from other churches. And over the years, at every important juncture in my life, I've seen this growth. I see an army slowly being assembled here in Cornerstone. This is a spiritual army ready to do battle against the principalities and powers in high places. And the New Testament, the term that's used is the word disciple. Disciple. We're not after a church of converts only. Come on, Cornerstone. We want you to be disciples. If a disciple, you know, at some point in your life, you get born again, you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you come to church, you learn to pay your tithes and all these wonderful things. You go to cell group and it's all wonderful. It's all hunky-dory. But I promise you this, I promise you this. At some point in your life, at some point, You will hear the Lord saying, now that you know who I am, now that you have tasted my goodness, are you willing to take up my cross, forsake everything, and follow me, and be my disciple? And at that point, you must choose. It's a choice. God doesn't coerce anybody into that choice. At that point, every one of us is given a choice. And if you say no, he will never revisit that ever again. You will still be in the house, you will still be a Christian. If you die, you will be, and and you're a believer, you will be part of the age that is to come, but you will never know what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and enjoy some of the the privileges that only disciples enjoy. I want to tell you this, my friends, it's worth following Jesus all the way. Amen. It's worth following Jesus all the way. In two, yeah, I want to just quickly move on to 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 22. It says, From the time they came to David, day by day, to help him, until it became a great army like the army of God. Wow, what an army. Could it be at this time that God is assembling in this house warriors to become like an army of God with the sole intention of seeing the great commission come to pass? Judges chapter 4 is an amazing story. And I want to give you a bit of a preamble. And I'm going to close with this story because this is very significant. Israel was at this time occupied by a king called Jabin. He was the king of the Canaanites. We had with him 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 long years, 20 long years, oppressed the children of Israel. And they were in great distress and they cried out to God. God answered and raised a woman, a prophetess called Deborah. And she arose and she said to Barak, who was the leader of the army of Israel. She said, He said, get the army ready. We're going to fight the Canaanites. They have stolen our inheritance. We're taking it back. I call her the woman in the Bible who was out to pick a fight. Hallelujah. Messengers were sent to all the tribes to assemble for battle. It was a time to fight for the vision. The tribes were mobilized, went into battle, and God gave Israel a great victory. Woo! Now, it's interesting that. Deborah's husband was called Lepidoth. Lepidoth, what a name, hallelujah. His name means enlightened one. And it was, he was an enlightened man in the sense that he was not threatened, that his wife was a brighter lamb than he was. Think about that. After the battle, Deborah wrote a song to commemorate the victory. And a whole chapter was dedicated to the song. It's in chapter 5 of the book of Judges. One of the things that they put into the song were the different reactions from the different tribes when they were asked to show up for duty. Some of them responded. Some of them didn't bother. Is it possible that songs are being written about your life, about the battles that you go through, about the times that you showed up for duty, about the times that you stood up and said, yes, Lord, I will respond? And could it also be that in the songs that are written about your life, There are times where where the things are written about you, about those that did not come for the battle. I want to begin with the tribes that didn't show up. The first was the tribe of Dan in the book of Judges, chapter 5, verse 17. Why did Dan remain at ease on the ships? Dan was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was a businessman. He was getting rich from the cargoes that came from the ships that docked at the harbor. The messengers came to the tribe of Dan, the leaders, and said, Gather for battle! The battle horns are blowing. It's time for war. Dan was preoccupied with business. Said, no, tell them that we are with them in the spirit. (laughs) We won't be there. Our business is too important. We can't leave our businesses. To Dan making money was the most important thing. And then when they wrote in the song of victory, this is what they said of Dan. Why did Dan remain in the ships at ease in the ships? Dan had no heart, no vision, no vision. For God's people, all he was interested in was making more money and more money. And Jesus had a word for these people. He warned them and he said, Life does not consist of the abundance of things that one possesses. Let me ask you, how many houses is enough for you? How many investment properties do you need to satisfy you? How many expensive cars do you need to have in your your family? How many exotic holidays do you need to go every year? How much is enough? for you are you a danite is your business more important than god's business in revelation chapter 7 it lists all the 12 tribes of israel that are written in heaven do you know that one tribe is missing and that is the tribe of dan they're no longer in the number of israel any longer why because they didn't have a heart for god people god's people they didn't have a heart for god they were only interested in their wealth Be careful, my friends, about this whole issue of wealth. It blinds people. This comfortable life, it blinds people. And I tell you this, have the guts to pray that prayer in the book of Proverbs. Lord, don't make me rich, that I may forget you and profane your name. Don't make me poor, lest I steal and profane your name. Give me what is enough for me, Lord. Have the guts to pray a prayer like this. And forsake your rights to whatever it is on this earth and say, God, I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do. At a moment's notice, I'm ready for deployment. Now, if you're a soldier of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter where he calls you because you're always ready. He doesn't, it doesn't matter whether, when you, you know, when you have to call to be fight fighting in a battle, that's what you've been trained for, man. In the book of Judges chapter 5 and verse 16, Talks about another tribe called Reuben. What does it say about Reuben? He says, why do you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings of the flocks? The divisions of Reubens? Oh, Reuben have great searchings of heart. You know, the battle horns of Deborah were sounding, war is coming, war is coming. The Reubenites, they preferred the sweet pipings of the flute. They had fallen in love with the easy life. We just want to chill, you know, we just... Why risk our lives for the common good of all? It's very seldom, I tell you this, and I hope I don't offend anybody here, but it's very seldom that men and women who are raised for great societal changes come from the wealthy class. Very seldom. Rich people make a difference in this world. There are exceptions, but there are few, and I'm talking about massive spiritual changes. The Laodicean church was drowning in their wealth, in their comfort. And what did it provoke? All that do? Lukewarmness. It it produced lukewarmness. I tell you this, the love of the world has depleted the ranks of the army of Christ. And they were great searchers of the heart. They were big thinkers, intellectuals. And when the summons for the battle came, they said, let us think about it. I don't know if you ever watched the movie, Hex So Rich. It was a great show, a story about a man called Desmond Dawes. True story. He was a conscientious objector, seven-day Adventist. He didn't want to carry a rifle. But the army was fighting and many people were dying. His friends were dying. And he said, I cannot keep still at home knowing that my friends are paying a price for the nation. And he enlisted in the army, but he refused to carry a, a, a gun, a rifle. They persecuted him. They made his life like hell. He went into the battlefield as a medic. His life was terrible. They went through hell and back, but his courage won him a medal of honor. Hallelujah. And I tell you, this is the same thing. How can we sit at home when the army of God is out in battle? In Judges chapter 5, in verse 17, there was another tribe called Asher. They continued at the seashore. Stayed by the inlets. What does that mean? Let me stretch this a little. It means I think that they were having a vacation and they didn't want to be disturbed. Again, you've got to watch for this trap, my friends, because many of us are almost religious when it comes to planning our year and retreat, but we don't give any thought to our lives. I'm not against vacations, but be careful that we don't develop this entitlement mentality. We've got to relinquish at some point our calendars to Him. I struggle with that. I know we all, you know, have our diaries and calendars. What will it take for me to just say, Lord, here's my 12-month calendar. I'm not going to put anything on my calendar. Fill it for me, Lord. I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. I watch a strange phenomenon happen in the church. People sometimes come up to me, to our leaders and say, "Uh, I need a break from ministry. And people who say that often never come back. I mean, my stats are solid on this, man. It's like they switch off, take a step back, stop serving, stop coming to cell. atrophy sets in, and before you know it, they stop coming to church, they backslide, and they're not part of, him, not even in the body of Christ any longer. Asher was enjoying the beach when the messenger came and said, You're needed for battle. His response go away, don't disturb me, I'm on vacation. And the Bible says that in the last days, men shall be pleasures, lovers of pleasures more than the lovers of God. The only thing that matters when you stand before the throne of God is, did you do the will of your Father in heaven? Have you done the will of your Father? This life is a probationary life, my friends. You are setting yourself up right now by the choices you make for eternity. For the next age to come, your role, your position, your rank, everything that you are going to be in that age is going to determine how you respond in this age. Now we come to those who responded. And I'm going to take this to a landing. Chapter 5, verse 18. Zebulun was a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Nethali also on the heights of the battlefield. Here were two tribes that were willing to die on the battlefield. One of the things is that you get a lot of feeds during this uh, Ukraine crisis. I'm on a couple of these feeds, and uh, you know, you've got all these pictures. And it's interesting to see pictures of all these young girls with uh, AK 47s in their arms, young men, young women who are ready. They're not soldiers, but they want to fight. They want to fight. And it's interesting that um, Putin is a, you know, I'm not a, a political analyst, I'm not a pundit, so I don't try to give professional advice about these things. I'm a pastor. So I see things from a prophetic uh, perspective. But it's interesting that somebody commented that Putin, you know, he's, he's the picture of a macho man riding on a horse without a shirt on, you know. And he's hiding in a bunker somewhere in the Kremlin. And this Zelensky guy, before he became president, did you know he was a comedian? Nobody's laughing today, all right. But he was a comedian. And he's Jewish, Interestingly. And he's out there in the open saying, I'm willing to die for my people. <laughs> I mean, it's a stark contrast. Dan was making history while Dan, sorry, was making money. Reuben was chilling. Zebulun and Naphtali were making history and dying their lives for what they love. They sent men into the battlefield. They committed their soldiers. And in verse 14, it says, those who in Zebulun bore the recruited staff. In other words, they went throughout the tribes of Israel. Come on, it's time for the battle. Get ready for the battle. They were rounding up people, sounding the alarm. And that's what I'm doing here today. I'm just blowing a trumpet and sound the, sounding the alarm for this church to rise up. And then in verse 15, I'll close with this. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Issachar was um, a prophetic tribe. And usually the first people that get it are the prophetic people because they discern something is shifting. They discern that we're in a season of war and they're saying, God, count me in this. Well, I want to be like a prince of Issa. I want to run with the vision, amen. I don't want to be caught up in pleasure. I don't want to be caught up in making more money. I don't want to be retiring early and playing golf till I die. Praise God, I don't play golf. I don't want to sit on the seashore, count turtles and drink coconut juice. I heard a man who was on a coconut juice diet. His friend said to him, did you lose weight? He said, no, but I can sure climb trees. <laughs> they don't find this funny. <laughs> so Barak and uh, Deborah goes out, faces this ginormous army with iron chariots. God gave them a great victory. And the, king, the general of the army, a man called Cesare, escaped by the skin of his teeth. He flees to a tent of Herber, the Kenite. Herber was, uh, his wife was a courageous woman called Jael. And the interesting thing about this woman, she was just a housewife. She wasn't at the battlefront. You know, sometimes people think, I must, I must be able to speak eloquently before I can use, be used by God. I have to be a, some famous preacher, uh, you know, or have an incredible talent. No, no, no. Here was a housewife, a little housewife, who saw an intruder come into a house, and she didn't like it. And she didn't even have a sword with her. But when the enemy got comfortable, Jael took a ten pack, put it on his, on his head, and drove that right through his enemy's skull. And that ordinary wife in a home, got up, took authority, got courageous, and said, I have a part to play in this battle as well. Woo! Listen, moms, housewives, God has given you the authority like the authority of Jael So rise up, stand up against that intruder when he comes and tries to intrude to your home and you show him who's boss. Hallelujah. And if your husband is a no-good layabout bum, then you rise up, save your family. Hallelujah. And use what you got, what God has given to you. This song is interesting because it ends with two women, Jael and Deborah. The preachers, I heard one preacher preach and he said it ended this way because it was a message to the rest of the enemies of Israel that if you try and mess with Israel, we'll send in the women. Hallelujah. <laughs> our women are tough women. Hey, Amen. Don't mess with our women. Cornerstone women, are you like that? Yeah. Songs are being written about us right now. My friends, this is not the season. There is a time for fun. There is a time for enjoyment. There is a time for holidays. There is a time for relaxation, I guess, there's a time for us to chill. But this is not the time. This is really a time for war, a time for battle. And I want to sound the, the, the alarm today, the trumpet, and call men and women to battle. I want to close with a little illustration. It's in 1 Samuel 14. Israel had a professional army, 600 soldiers, that's all they had. Two swords. How do you fight a war when you don't have weapons? You know, in every war, the first thing that you need is when, for example, when America went into World War II, the first thing was the president had to stand before the Congress and give them the reason why the Congress should pass a bill for the act of war. Because if you don't have justification, if you don't know why you are fighting a war, halfway in the war, you're going to say, why are we doing this, man? You've got to know why you're fighting a war. So he's got to go to Congress. He's got to get Congress to pass the act of war because it's got to be ratified by the Senate. The next thing you've got to do is you've got to draft the soldiers because you can't fight a war without army. an army. And then the next thing you've got to do is you've got to equip them with weapons. This whole machinery of weapon training and weapon, you know, the whole thing about weapons. And the fourth thing that you've got to do is you've got to make sure your supply lines are all prepared. Logistics and all these things before you can actually go into war. So I'm thinking about a war footing. What does it take for cornerstone to be on a war footing? I think about these things. And so here is Israel. Six hundred soldiers, no weapons, fighting and fighting the um, the Philistines. Three chapters before this, Israel was in an existential threat. An enemy came. They sounded the alarm. It was a volunteer, had no professional army. They sounded the alarm. 300,000 soldiers assembled. And I tell you this, a volunteer army will always beat a professional army any day if the motivation is right. An army of lions led by a sheep will always lose to an army of sheep led by a lion. Trust me on this. People got to know what they're fighting for. And if you know that you're fighting for your family, for your children, for your loved ones, for your, what, for your way of life that you believe in, I'm telling you there comes a motivation like nothing else and it puts steel in your backbone. Will you all stand with me, please? I'm going to ask uh, Caleb to do this song. We used to do this in our conference in the early days, a song of marching forward into battle. And I'm calling you to stand up for Jesus, my friends. Stand up for him. Stand up for him. Count him worthy for all your life and say, God, I'm willing to lay down everything. Some of you here today, I know he's calling you right now, summoning you into battle. You feel this tug in your spirit. You feel, yep, this is the word. I hear the spirit of God speaking to me. And I want you to rise up as we sing the song. And then I'm going to close in prayer. I want you to consider your commitment to the Lord. Are you a convert or are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you made a decision to take up your cross? Forsake all. Love Jesus above everything else. Above your family, above your marriage, above your children. Make the decision, Lord, to say, God, I'm willing to take up the cross and to die daily, every single day, Lord, to lay my life down for the glory of your name. Take up your cross, ye servants of the cross. Hallelujah.